Good morning. So I had uh, talked to the first service about how much I enjoy the music here. And uh, however, as a, uh, I was born and raised Methodist, so as much as I would like to put my hand in the air uh, during the songs, I'm still of the belief that I will be struck by lightning, as all Methodists do. So, uh, but it's going to come, and um, I hope you're all here to see it when, when that day happens. But again, great job, Andrew. Really, really enjoy it. So... Um, like Andrew said, we're, we're going to you know, kind of go through a concluding uh, uh, sermon here today on Jonah after being through um, the, uh, the first four weeks. And so I'll start off with, with a few questions for you. Have you ever had your heart set on revenge? Or have you ever been so angry that all you could think about was getting even? Was the thought of mercy ever so far from you that it never crossed your mind? Because if so, you share a bit of a, a com- commonality with Jonah. So I, I've been in this position several times, and I'm in the army, and very much like in the business world, we have subordinates and superiors and peers that we work with. Um, but needless to say, competition between peers can get pretty intense because as you progress through the ranks, the, uh, the number of people you're with grows smaller. So it can get, get very competitive. Um, in this particular case, I was asked to help out uh, one of my peers who was struggling. Uh, we were both commanders at the same time and both commanded very similar units. So the request wasn't uh, illogical. Uh, it's just, to be honest, I didn't want to do it. Because not only did I not want to do it, I didn't want to be even associated with this guy. Um, in my opinion, again, being brutally honest among the church here, I thought he wasn't cut out for the job he was in, and the fact that others like myself who had helped him was the only reason that he had gotten to where he was. R- real Christ-like spirit, right? So uh, for, for brevity, I'll, I'll get to the point. I helped him get his situation under control. I spent a lot of time doing it. I did not do it with a cheerful heart. In fact, I confided in several of my peers just how much I did not enjoy this task, how much I dreaded it when I could be using that time to work with my own troops. So anyway, it it all ended, and we had our first uh, quarterly inspection, and you can probably guess what happened. He was ranked number one, and I was livid because he didn't deserve it. I deserved it, and so on and so forth. So welcome to Jonah. the only difference being that Jonah actually initially disobeyed. I would have done that as well, but like uh, Ed back there knows, we have the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which doesn't allow us uh, to do that. So, all right, getting into the book. The book of Jonah was written sometime in the 700s. Some scholars say 745. Some of the events may be as early as 860. However, it seems kind of best to put it between 800 and 750. And if uh, if you're a student of history, This was a period where Nineveh was basically in its heyday. Now, Jonah, he lived near Nazareth, actually, in a place called Gath Heifer. And during this time, Israel was actually doing really well. They had wealth, they had prosperity, they had land. In fact, it's interesting because Jerusalem, which was relatively small at the beginning of the 8th century, was now actually becoming quite the city quite the city. shouldn't have Assyria right up against that. So Assyria, however, was going through a lot of problems at the time. They were a powerful empire, but they were a very evil empire. Um, They gained a lot of their power through some very cruel practices you may have read about, uh, flaying, beheading, um, 
complete deportation, complete destruction, one of the worst uh, empires to date at this time. Here's another description about the actual city, though, of Nineveh. It says, an exceedingly great city of three days' journey in breadth, meaning about 60 miles wide, whose population was around 120,000, located on the outskirts of Mosul, which is in modern-day northern Iraq, um, on the bank of the Tigris River. Now, Nineveh was an important junction for commercial routes because it was kind of a link between the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean. So they received wealth from many sources because of that and also attributed it to becoming one of the, uh, the greatest ancient cities of all time and, and also the, uh, what turned out to be the last capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. But again, make no mistake, this was a very, very evil place. Now, when we look to the book of Jonah, the setting follows the chapters. So we start out with the Mediterranean Sea in chapter 1 to the belly of the fish to Nineveh, and it ends on the eastern side of Nineveh. And each of the four chapters kind of has a different focus from the sailors in chapter 1 to Jonah, then to the Ninevites, and then ending again with Jonah. And we'll explore more of that, but um, let's go and continue. So the book of Jonah, again, four chapters long, and you can break down really the, the theme here into in two pieces. One is Jonah's original commission by God and his resulting disobedience, and then the second being his second commission and his obedience. Now, this is an interesting book for a lot of reasons, but first, I think you know, one of the most interesting points of Jonah is it's a book written by a prophet. It's included in the prophetic books, but there's, there's no prophesying actually in it. It's just simply an account of an experience of a prophet. You know, I think Andrew preached last Sunday that, yeah, he had literally an eight-word sermon, and in Hebrew, it was five words. Well, I did go back and fact-check that, and sure enough, five words in Hebrew. He was absolutely correct. Um, so it's capital Nineveh was where Jonah was instructed to go, and instructing him to go to Nineveh was huge because not only did he possess a strong hatred for Assyria, he was essentially being led straight into the lion's mouth, straight into the capital. And, and again, Andrew made a, a comparison last week when he said it would be like one of us being called from the United States to go and take this message to Afghanistan. And that is not, that is a very, very accurate description. That's just how evil that this place was. So when we look, though, to the theme, the theme is also straightforward. Do we follow God or do we follow our own impulses? Do we fulfill the work that he wants us to do or do we go out on our own? Do we minister to those who we don't like or do we avoid them? And these four chapters contain a ton of instruction for us on this. And the greatest charge of the book is left for the very end. So we're not, we're not going to cut off early. But... Moving to point one this morning, point one being our God is a sovereign God. And if you need any help assessing God's sovereignty, this is a great book to start. In the book, look at what God uses to make his point. He uses a fish, he uses a vine, a worm, an evil city, and a disobedient prophet. So quite the list of props. And look at what he does. He controls the weather he controls his kingdom, things that we obviously can't do. But even knowing this, I think we still have a hard time trusting in him and believing in him and submitting ourselves to him. Because I think at times 
and it's hard to admit, but we fall victim to the opinions of society. And what we end up doing, we pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want to follow. In some cases, even the parts we want to believe. And then we accept essentially a watered-down version for the rest. Now, now cynics will lead us to believe that this book doesn't show the sovereignty of God. They'll say that this is merely a story, basically a great story with a, with a good moral at the end. And they'll say maybe that this book is an allegory. You may have heard that, that, that Jonah was a representation of Israel and the fish was essentially the Babylonian Empire. They may even say it was a parable. But to be clear, none of these explanations work. They simply don't fit upon further, once you actually dive into the descriptions of each. Because really the only thing that makes sense is taking Jonah for what it was, which was history. And if you look at what we have in the story, you have the, we talked about the fish, the vine, the worm, but we also have the human heart, a heart which is evil at its root, but a heart that is changed by our creator. We have pagan sailors whose hearts are changed. We have a disobedient disciple whose heart's changed. And we have an entire evil city who repents and calls on the Lord. Now, Eric, uh, Eric Smith wrote a, a good description of this so well that I'm not going to paraphrase. And he says, This brief book radiates the good news of the merciful creator who rules every square inch of his universe with wisdom and power. No force is powerful enough to thwart his plans to exalt his son and give him a kingdom populated with those who've been redeemed from every nation, tribe, and tongue and conform to the image of Jesus. There's no worm that eats one leaf in the silent corner of one forest on the planet that does so apart from his appointment. Every breeze creating every ripple on every ponder puddle today goes forth by his decree. And there's no heart in our, in our community today so hardened with sin that he cannot overcome it by his grace through the proclamation of his word. So whatever our circumstance today, may we rest and rejoice in the knowledge of the provincial care of this great God. Again, Eric Smith, a great description of this book. So as further demonstration of his sovereignty, let's look at three things that he does. The first thing he does is he sends a storm. In chapter one, verse four, it says, but the Lord hur hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, this just wasn't any storm. This was a storm so powerful that even experienced sailors on board were terrified. So think about that for a minute. Think about these sailors. These men have spent their entire lives on the water, and we can assume they've seen all different kinds of weather. You know, I, uh, in college, I used to work on a commercial fishing boat. My wife loves the fishing boat stories. But um, we never got nervous for a storm unless the captain was nervous. And that's what I thought about when I, re you know, when I read this. No matter how big the waves were, how hard the wind blew, um, as long as Billy looked like he had it under control, we were, we were you know, perfectly fine. But the fact, again, the fact they were terrified just speaks volumes. So just though as the Lord commands this storm, he calms it. If you look to chapter 1, verse 15, it says, So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. So the lesson we can take 
from this verse is this. The Lord can stir up storms in our own lives. I, I know many of you have probably seen them. Some of you are probably going through these right now. But during these storms, it's when we run to him and when we call to him, because as we see in the text, and we also see this throughout the New Testament, when we go to him, he will quiet the storms when we trust in him, but it will be in his time. So the next thing he does is he uses different animals to make his point. And I think you can't help but notice the contrast here. In, in this book, in the first chapter, one of the largest animals on the planet is used being the whale. And in the last chapter, it's a worm. Yeah, obviously one of the smaller. And so God will use anything to make his point. And that's a key thing to remember, especially when we start to remember that we're not able to be used. Maybe it's because we think we sin too much. Maybe it's because we think we have a past. Maybe we're too young, we're too old. Look to this passage And trust that the one who can use both the whale and the worm can definitely use you as well. Finally, God saved a city that many determined wasn't worth saving. What kind of love is that? What kind of mercy is shown in his action to Nineveh? Because are any of us actually worth saving? Because I would argue by ourselves, no, we're not. But Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned, And fall short of the glory of God. Yet he proves to us time and time again that even though we fall short, short, we have hope in him and he'll lead us to our salvation. The second point I want to make this morning based on the text is that we're accountable. And the fact that we're accountable to God probably doesn't come as a surprise to any of us. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. In today's world, a lot of folks think, especially the secular world, that Christians are accountable to God and and non-Christians aren't. That as Christians, we're to follow the moral path of Christ, but non-believers are not. And we see this in how in new laws that are written on new interpretations of marriage. Well, this book speaks directly to that concept, and I believe answers the question explicitly, you know, the people of Nineveh were wicked. They were evil, they were adulterous, and if that theory were true, then why would God care? Why would he send a prophet to them? It's because we're all his, whether we believe it or not. Whether the world, whether the secular world wants to acknowledge this or not, we know there exists a moral absolute. We know there is a right and there's a wrong. And all the intellectuals and academics and philosophers can talk about how we're nothing but random chance embedded with some sort of herd mentality for the survival of our species. But this is wrong. And it's proven wrong time and time again And it's proven wrong by the very people that subscribe to this position. For example, if you look to Germany at the end of World War II, the Nazi planners, they were arrested and they were brought to trial. But crimes against humanity did not exist. But yet the world knew something had to be done. 
the world, many countries came together and realized that, yes, there may not be a law that exists, but something has to be done. The, the, the judges at Nuremberg even said, the Hague Convention nowhere designates such practices as criminal, nor is any sentence prescribed, nor any mention made of a court to try and punish offenders. So these trials, these Nuremberg trials were established so that all of humanity would be guarded by an international legal shield that even a head of state would be held criminally responsible and punished for crimes against humanity. Why? Because the world knew. The world knew it had to be addressed, and the world knew it had to be punished. Why, if not for a law embedded within us in the very fabric of our beings, and one put there by our creator. One that cries out for the way that things are and laments, the, I'm sorry, one that cries out for the way things should be and laments the way things are. Um, the presiding, the prosecutor for the trials was Justice Robert H. Jackson, and he had a very short but incredible opening statement and, and it captures this so well. And he said, The wrongs which we seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated, so malignant, so devastating that civilization cannot tolerate their being ignored because it can't survive their being repeated. He goes on to look at the prisoners and he states, These prisoners represent sinister influences that will lurk in the world long after their bodies have returned to dust. He said, civilization can afford no compromise with the social forces which would gain renewed strength if we deal ambiguously or indecisively with the men on whom those forces now precariously survive. And why does he say it? He says it, he says the world, according to him, have to act. Because we know that inside of us, no matter what color, nation, or gender we know, because our Creator has put this inside of us. And though as broken and evil as we may be, we still know. And therefore, we're subject to His law, but thankfully, recipients of His salvation. So, to, to further this concept, look at Jonah himself. From his disobedience, he calls trouble for those around him. How true is that today? Does our sin hurt others? Does our disobedience hurt those we love the most? Of course it does. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. So here, he's essentially giving thanks to God for correcting his path because he knows he's failed. But he owns it. And at this point, it's nothing but a, a prayer of thanksgiving. Because he was disobedient. And as a prophet, he had a specific job to do, and he failed to do the job. He was to be, be obedient to God's word, yet he failed to do so. And he ran from his responsibility. And, and let me give you a con, uh, an example. When he ran from his responsibility, so he was instructed to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was 500 miles to the east. He, his goal was to go to Tarshish, which was 2,500 miles to the west. So when he ran, he, he ran. So it, it, but as we can see, he was held accountable. And the lesson is this, 
is that as followers of Christ, we can't shy away from our responsibilities. In this case, the Lord stopped Jonah from further disobedience and he stopped him from fleeing. But there's times where he's not gonna stop us. So we must be obedient because we are accountable to him. The final point this morning is this. He desires salvation for all of us. Chapter four, verse three, he says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for death is better to me than life. So Jonah had desired that Nineveh be destroyed. And though he was appreciative to God when he was saved, he was angry that God would extend that same salvation to Nineveh. And we still do this today. We see it a lot, actually. I mentioned in the introduction, you ever just get so angry when bad people get good things or when you perceive someone is getting something they don't deserve. And we're all guilty of this. You know, we seem like my wife told me when I was, she's the recipient of some of these sermons, so God bless her for that. But um, she said, yeah, it's kind of like when we, when we rank sin. And I thought about that, and I was like, yeah, you, you know, you're absolutely right. How when we, we look at somebody that proclaims to know Jesus, and we're like, yeah, well, you know, they don't know what this guy did. You, know, you see these, you know, conversions in prisons and things of the sort. And we're all guilty of it. But why? If we acknowledge that God is in complete control of this world, or back to Eric Smith's quote, if there's no worm that eats one leaf in the silent corner of one forest on the planet that does so apart from his appointment, then how do we adopt this attitude? And why do we adopt this attitude? And though unintentional, what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in a place that we weren't designed for, which is a place on level with him. And I think we're all guilty of it. And this isn't biblical. It's not what we're taught. It's not the example that Christ showed us. And it's wrong. Moving to verse 4 in chapter 4, the Lord says, Do you have good reason to be angry? And I love the video from last week, the toddler temper tantrums. Uh, we got three kids. We've seen plenty of those. But I love this verse because do we really need an answer? Because we don't. Because we know what the answer is. The fact that we're not in any position to make determinations on judgment, the fact is, not only that, but like who deserves what? We should be eternally grateful that we don't get what we deserve. Because as we know, what we deserve is the wrath of God. We don't, do, we don't deserve forgiveness. But due to the gift of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven, and we should be very thankful that he doesn't withhold those gifts from us. So... On this, and in thinking of, of Jonah and his desire you know, for revenge or, or to avenge, I did uh, get kind of sidetracked in, in thinking about the greatest novel ever written on revenge, The Count of Monte Cristo. And I'm sorry, sometimes my brain goes in these directions, but I thought about it. And when you think about the main character, Edmund Dantes, who becomes the Count of Monte Cristo, what happens to him? He's, he's a young man on the eve of his wedding he is brought to trial and sentenced to life in prison for treason, which was something he, he did not do. And, and so he goes to prison, and long story short, he ends up finding a way out of prison. He finds a fortune, and he dedicates his life and his money to seeking revenge on everybody who put him there. And it is hard to read that book and not cheer him on. Um, 
If you haven't read it, I highly recommend. But anyway, going back to this, I was thinking that there was one interchange. The guy he, that helps him escape, the guy he gets his fortune from, is a guy named Abi Faria. And you know, he, he guides him through this process and, like I said, ends up getting him released. But he, he makes one interesting comment during their exchange. He said, here's your final lesson. Don't commit the crime for which you now serve the sentence. God said, vengeance is mine. And if you know the story, Edmond Dantes famously replies, I don't believe in God, to which Faria says, it doesn't matter, he believes in you. So if you've ever heard that quote, it came from the Count of Monte Cristo, not the shack and whoever else has used it. But um, great book. So going back to scripture. Um, so going back to scripture, how unlikely was it that Israel, who had heard the message of the Lord so many times and yet failed to repent, well, then you have Nineveh who hears the message once and repents immediately. I mean, if that's not the Lord's providence at its finest. And we can continue. We can continue to see this throughout the Gospels. Look to Matthew 12, verse 41. It says, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In church, something greater than Jonah is here with us as well. Something greater than any political party, something greater than any pandemic, than any war, than any disease, and than any failure. Something greater is here. From the gospel, the Lord is pleased by our obedience. It's not enough to just hear it, as in the case of Israel, and it's not enough to simply preach it as we see with Jonah. But what we're to do and what we're called to do is to be obedient, to submit our lives to him, to confess our sins, to ask for forgiveness, and then to tell of it. Because there's freedom in this. There's freedom when you vocally acknowledge your sins to the Father because he knows them already. But by acknowledging them and by repenting, we strip the ability of the evil one to use it against us. Because where does sin thrive? It thrives in the darkness. It thrives in those areas of our heart that we don't want anyone to see. And no matter what, light will always overcome darkness. So it doesn't matter who we are or where we come from or what we have in our past. Just as those of Nineveh heard the good news, repented, and accepted the gift of salvation, so can you. You cannot, you cannot outsend the grace of Jesus Christ. So, look into Romans chapter 3, verse 29 through 30. He says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. So, just like the Ninevites, the gospel tells us the same, that we're all his children. And the blood of Christ was spilled, not for certain groups of people, but for all of us. For God so loved the world. And I know that this is hard. I know, because I see things at times from our politicians that make my evil heart want awful things for them. But he loves them. And I see things from leaders in our own community that can put me into a rage. 
but he loves them. And I see things from athletes and movie stars and celebrities that make me cringe and desire punishment, but he loves them. And I see things from, some, from the church that can make me want to admonish and shame, much less correct, but he loves them. And he is our example because he is what right looks like. So uh, this is an excerpt from a book we're going to be studying. Andrew mentioned it um, earlier for the next 10 weeks. It's called uh, Gentle and Lowly. And it's interesting because there's only one place in Scripture where Jesus ever talks about his own heart. And it's in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. 98% sure I got that right. Um, but it's the only place where he talks about his, his own heart, and he refers to it as gentle and lowly. And I just want to briefly read you the introduction before, before we conclude today. And it says, this is a book about the heart of Christ, who, who he is, who he is really, what's most natural to him, what ignites within him most immediately as he moves towards sinners and sufferers, what flows out of him most freely, most instinctively, Who is he? This book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, and the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator, those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It's for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God loves us, but suspect we've deeply disappointed him. Who have told others about the love of Christ, yet wonder if, as for us, he harbors mild resentment. Who wonder if we've shipwrecked our lives beyond what can be repaired. Who are convinced that we've permanently diminished our usefulness to the Lord. Who've been swept off our feet by perplexing pain and are wondering how we can keep living under such numbing darkness. It is written, in other words, for normal Christians. And what he does in this book, and what I really like, is he, he goes back to those that came before him a lot, from the Puritan preachers in the 16th and 17th century to Jonathan Edwards, um, several different, uh, different preachers throughout history. But one in particular struck me as just completely, completely amazing, and it was actually a modern-day reference to John Bunyan who, from The Pilgrim's Progress in a book Bunyan wrote called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And in it, what he has, he has an interchange between a sinner and Christ. And here's what it says. It says, no wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's a perversity down inside me that's hidden from everyone. I know it all, he says. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavier, the burden is heavy and it's heavier all the time. He says, then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whomever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
So he has sent his son as this gift is our salvation for all of his children. And thankfully, one day we will be with him in a place so amazing and a place so beautiful that Christ himself called it paradise. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today and thank you for this time to gather and worship with you. To gather freely, Father, in a country where we're allowed to do so. Father, we thank you for this church and those who lead it. We ask that you be with them. Father, help us to remember to run to you. Father, when we've failed, when we've, when we've turned our back on you, Father, when we're going through family problems, when we're going through marriages that are failing and financial trouble and, and failing health, Father, remind us to run to you. Father, we know that you can carry the burden, and we know that your heart is gentle and lowly. Father, we thank you, and we thank you for the most beautiful gift, our salvation through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.